I'm giving the nod. We are doing well. Good morning. Welcome remotely to Providence Orthodox Presbyterian Church, at least the preaching part of the service. We're grateful that we have technology to be able to do this by God's providence. So I will give a little thankfulness here to my congregation first. I'll read something, and then we will have a time of prayer, and then preaching, and then more prayer. Of course, the rest of you can continue worship with singing of psalms and hymns at home, as well as reading any devotions on this, the Lord's Day. So first of all, I want to thank my church for their kind and thoughtful gift last week to myself and my family for Pastor's Appreciation Day. Uh, we look forward to trying out the new restaurants. We've not tried, I don't think, any of those on the cards, and we're thankful for such a loving church family. Let's go ahead and pray. Our God and Father above, by your Spirit, we are grateful, Lord, and we are safe and sound, thankfully, Lord, by what you've given us in your providence, that on this day with icy roads, God Almighty, that we can stay warm and safe and at the same time hear some edification of the preaching of the Word of God and God Almighty and continue what we know as natural worship at home is best to our ability. Our Lord and Savior, we're grateful for the snow. We need the moisture. We have many years of drought here in Colorado, God, and we pray that it has been broken this year. And Lord, we pray in particular as we continue and contemplate upon your gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ, uh, that we would be edified this morning and that we would uh, be edified throughout this, your Lord's Day, God Almighty, with proper and appropriate actions. And Lord, to be equipped, we pray, especially for this week, to do our work in your kingdom, we pray. In Jesus' name, our Lord and Savior, amen. Let us go to Micah chapter 6. Micah chapter 6, I thought appropriate with what's is coming this week in two days, which for many people, of course, is Halloween, and for those in the Reformed tradition is Reformation Day, especially, which predates it. Micah 6.8, let us listen attentively to the Word of God. He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. As we contemplate this late October upon our spiritual history rooted in the Reformation of the 1600s, we should consider our social history as well. The Reformation of Luther and Calvin and others was not only a revival of the soul of the church, but the soul of a nation. The Reformation of the societies of Germany, Switzerland, Scotland, and other nations were directly impacted by the Reformation within the church. The multitude of holy days, for example, or more vacation time than the average American today, was greatly reduced. Promiscuous priests were thrown out of the ministry. Wasted papal funds were redistributed to better use. Better laws were enacted, and kings were freed from undue papal influence, and the right to resist tyrants was more or less codified. In other words, the Great Reformation of our church hails from a twofold reformation, a transformation of both society and church, of the body and the soul of a nation. And this makes sense. The church, as instituted by God Almighty through Christ our Lord, His Son, was created in the midst of an already existing society. First, the mini-society of families in the case of Adam and Eve and their children, then the tribe of Abraham, including his servants, then the entire nation of Israel. The Great Commission does not undermine this historical pattern, but assumes it, it tells us, 
to go forth, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. In the early days of Germany and England and uh, America, the local pagan tribes often converted as a group, I mean Armenia, uh, often converted as a group. We learn about this in, more in history class for Renee. Usually, uh, when their leaders converted, the whole tribe converted. And their pagan social practices started changing as well, just like at the Reformation. Changing hearts changes actions, to be sure. In these cases, their twofold reformation was simultaneous. The birth of a new church brought about the rebirth of their existing societies. Their societies changed, but it was still their societies and not someone else's. This is what I mean by the church being created in God's providence upon existing societies. And this twofold reformation is well established in the Old Testament, as we know. Israel was both a nation and a church, and the one affected the other. There was a clear division of authority, to be sure, with different judicial courts, one for the king and one for the Lord, as we read in Second Chronicles 19.11 and following. But there was one people, the body of the nation, with their customs, practices, and laws, and they had one religion, one God, and one church. As we live in a post-Christian America, an ever-increasingly pagan America, we too need a twofold reformation. Although we do not have the same arrangements of society and church as Israel of old, we still have a society and a church that needs reformation. And I think the passage in Micah 6, 8 is a good summary of reformational goals that includes both church and society, for that was his audience. The prophets of old, as we've gone through Micah before and Zechariah and elsewhere, were preaching to the church. We, we always remember that fact, I'm sure, but also to the nation. And so their urgings here, especially the moral urgings, were urgings to both domains. The religious urgings to the priests, for example, were clearly given to the church. But that which is general, as it is in this case, and Micah 6.8, was to, to all the domains. He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. So the first point is reforming society. Reforming society, to do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly. A reforming society here, of course, Micah does not specify who and what justice, mercy, and humility are. He just says it. But the book points to social and religious concerns. If you go carefully through the book of Micah, as we have done before, uh, you'll see that he was concerned about the poor, the middle class, that were being downtrodden, oppressed, and abused. And, of course, he was also concerned about the pure worship of God that was contaminated by the priests and the like. Both were concerned of his. He was concerned with the twofold reformation. And by society, I mean everything not uniquely religious. Politics, legal matters, sometimes called the state, for example. This is uh, what, of course, we have in America, the church-state distinction. But again, they had that distinction. In the Old Testament, they had two different courts. Law courts and the religious court in Second Chronicles 19, for example. Uh, we believe uh, in these kind of distinctions, of course, to be sure, the separation of powers and duties. But not an influence in the form of society. Society is still influential. Politics, legal matters, still affects and impacts the church. But they are different and they are distinct. That's what I mean by society. The politics and legal matters as well. And anything else is not politics. Hollywood, entertainment, businesses, news sources, schools, universities, everything else. Marriage and family. Marriage itself is not properly spiritual in the sense that uh, there are no marriages outside the church. Of course, unbelievers are married. It's a real institution. It's a social institution. This is what I'm talking about. Families and friendship and the like. 
expectations, social practices, organic life within the confines of the law, but not limited by the law and politics. Everything outside of the church uh, proper in that sense, in religious, in Christianity. So what does Reformation look like in a society? We can look at it from the, with respect to the law of God, because clearly, although Micah does not specify who and what justice and mercy are, he believes his audience knows what it is. He doesn't have to explain it, at least in that text, although all the admonitions in the prior chapters give the examples of violations of justice and of mercy and of humility. As I said before, the attack upon the poor and the middle class and the pure worship of God. So he's referring to the law of God. And so I think it makes sense when you talk about Reformation society to go to the law of God, because the law of God is the standard of any such Reformation. So the first table, who, <clears throat> first table here, to ask ourselves, and I think I, our church, I know many of our, in our church, and our churches and our presbytery would agree with this when we ask, would you like to live in early America? I would. I'd be fine living in early America. I might not like a number of things, but look, what we have today is, Needs a reformation. With Washington, Madison, the Calvinist John Jay, he grew up that way, the, uh, the great uh, Supreme, Supreme Court Justice. But what did they have back then in early America? Lots of conservative Christians, at least I grew up that way in the 80s and 90s. Hey, let's go back to early America, be wonderful, we had a better time and everything else. Well, they had blasphemy laws. If you were caught publicly blaspheming, if you had the media or entertainment at the bars, or the, they don't have theaters uh, and the like, but that came later. They had blasphemy laws. You couldn't misuse Jesus' name, for example. They had Sunday laws. Uh, Jefferson and Madison uh, promoted Sunday laws. They had one in Virginia. The, you know, the great Thomas Jefferson, he was in favor of these things because they understood that Although they, obviously in early America, made the distinction between church and state in a different way in many ways with respect to the Old Testament and other nations in this world, still took seriously the law of God and the first table of the law. All the state constitutions, for example, mention God, Christianity, or even Christ, such as the South Carolina Constitution. Schools required Bible reading and the catechism. Nobody stopped that. This was common practice all across the 13 colonies. Social expectations, of course, of family life with assumed to be Christian, to act as Christian, to talk like a Christian. And even if they were not Christians in their heart, at least in their actions, they were a lot better in many regards than what we have today. The second table is uh, more obvious, of course, no more abortions. We have Reformation today. We would cut down on abortions. We're thankful for Roe v. Wade being overturned at the federal level. But that, of course, threw it down to the states. And unfortunately, in Colorado, we codified it before that happened. Stricter divorce laws. We wouldn't be so flippant in a Reformation of America with the family destroying it. And so this leads to justice, of course. Justice to walk humbly before our God, to do justly, to love mercy. And I'm already talking about justice here. Just laws against murder and adultery with no easy divorce, as I already said not to be unduly slow to punish is another example. The law courts can take a very long time to get things dealt with. Consistency in punishment without favoritism. And so we have, unfortunately, too much favoritism. We saw it in the 2020 riots where it's okay to do these things. It's okay to violate not only uh, attacking local businesses and the like, but not wearing masks when it was by law you had to wear a mask. It was okay for them. So this lack of inconsistency, therefore, it's 
unjust with respect to, to these matters. Social favoritism in this matter is a very terrible thing. This is not to do justly. This is the opposite. These are the reformations that we wish to have in society. And we pray to that end and do what little work we can. That's justice defined by the law of God, both the first and second table law by going through historical examples. Next is uh, to love mercy. What, what does that look like in society, love mercy? Justice is a little more easier. Mercy is a little, eh, I think, iffy there. Bosses, that is iffy in our, our thinking. Bosses being understanding, for example, of difficult family life that interferes with work. That would be merciful. A company, it's like, we understand. We don't, you have a life. You're not supposed to be working 80 hours a week, uh, late to the night and the like. You don't spend any time with your family. But unfortunately, many businesses, in my experience and what I've seen in our church, don't have that kind of mercy. They're just like, you got to work, you got to get it done. Money, 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 move, move, move. So that's an example to consider. It doesn't mean, of course, being a doormat for that business or the boss. A line must be drawn uh, in the sand, or workers will, work will suffer, or everyone else ends up with less pay. But I think often, in my experience, I, I was an engineer. I have worked uh, other blue-collar jobs, for example. You can cut a little more slack, be a little more flexible. And judges, for example, with respect to mercy, uh, that their laws are not too harsh. In some cases, our judges have uh, preference and ability to attenuate judgments, that is, punishments. And they ought to, if the circumstances warrant it. They should take into consideration these things. And, of course, this is not letting everyone off the hook for crimes that would lead to chaos. But, again, there's a lot of wiggle room, I think, when we realize how complicated things can be. And other times, there's very little wiggle room. It's very obvious that that person ought to be fully punished. And thirdly, to walk humbly in society. Justice in society, very obvious, I think, the law of God. Mercy, that could be a little more fuzzy, of course, because that depends on circumstances. Some things are such that it's obvious we should be a little more considerate, like in the case of businesses and families. Here, thirdly, another first point of the reformation of society, to walk humbly. What does Micah mean by walking humbly? Humility, we must not forget, humility is knowing your place in God's kingdom. Here, of course, with respect to society, it's knowing your place in society and to act upon that position. If you're poor, don't try to act rich and to go into excessive debt just because you want to be rich. If you're rich, don't act haughty towards the poor and other people, but to thank the Lord that he has given you those riches. Children should accept their lot in life and not try to be adults, and men and women should not try to act like each other. That's a lack of humility, not accepting your position in society. And of course, lastly here, with respect to reformation of society, I can go a lot more. We can all, can all have sit down and have a nice little conversation or a conference about it. People have. But I want to get to the more uh, pressing matter, the more immediate matter in the sense of what we can do in the second point. So the question I would ask with respect to reforming society, is this the end all for us? People talk about reforming our nation, about revival in our nation, about renewal of our country, and they ask us, well, why are you so obsessed with this world? Don't you care about the things of God? Well, we're not teaching a social gospel. This belief, I can't imagine anybody actually thinking Luther and Calvin believed in the social gospel. The social gospel was, forget the good news, it's all about changing society. It was the liberalism, the progressivism of 100 years ago that taught, taught this social gospel we reject that. All Reform, all Protestants reject that. But rather, it's clearly being concerned with loving our neighbor, 
with bad neighborhoods, murdering of babies. This is not the same thing as preaching salvation of the soul through cultural transformation. Not that at all. You may or may not get cultural transformation. You may or may not get better laws to stop murdering of babies. But should you stop because, well, we're not in heaven yet, and that's that's not the gospel? Of course it's not the gospel. I'm not teaching this as the gospel. The Bible doesn't teach this as the gospel. It tells us this is righteousness, this is holiness, this is justice. This is what we're called to do, if we can, in this life. We have a moral duty to do good to those around us. And what is the greatest moral duty of goodness? What's the greatest goodness? The greatest goodness is to bring the gospel to this nation. And that brings to the second point. This here, in which we as churches have more immediate control, as Christians, of course, to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly in reforming the churches. To reform the church in general, of course, we require public holiness. We want private holiness as well, to hold each other accountable while encouraging us in Christ Jesus our Lord. But in particular, to teach properly, good doctrine, to practice the right things, a church discipline, to teach the full counsel of the, of the Lord our God and the glories of the gospel. Teaching is very important, as we know, and I've heard, I feel like a broken record, on, I don't repeat it very often, I don't think anymore, there's a lot of ignorance in the churches today. It's very hard to change society, reform society by votes, of course, or by persuasion and the like, if you yourself are very ignorant of what holiness and justice is, or God's law, for that matter. We talk about the first table law, the second table law. That language itself is confusing to a lot of evangelicals. They're not taught these things. And that's where we can do the best, I think, right here and right now. Uh, as we know, we have very little political clout to change this nation, to change the laws, to righteous laws and the like. But we have maybe a little more spiritual clout, at least to people around and nearby us. And this is one thing we need to stand firm and clear upon, that re reforming society includes reforming the church. We must reform the church. In many ways, that's a more important imperative, a more necessary imperative insofar as if you can get it done more readily, go for it. Even if you can't get it done more readily, you ought to go for it. In society, you may not get it done very readily. It takes a lot of resources, and you don't have the resources, you don't do it. But if, even if you don't have the resources in the church, you want a purified church. You will push it. You will strain to your effort as best you can, even if that means leaving a church and going to another church to support them. That's doing something, at least, to purify the body of Christ. And so, we are called in particular to teach and to practice the Word of God, the Gospel of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And at the same time, in the same mindset, remembering that we are pilgrims in this world. That is, we shouldn't come to the end of ourselves and fall apart because things aren't changing fast enough. We ought to have a certain urgency, to be sure, but sometimes... There's a danger of going too far and becoming too depressed, and we ought not to give up, but rather persevere day by day, just like the Christian walk. When we're called to fight sin, we're fighting sin in society by exercising justice, if we can, and in the church by exercising justice, if we can. We'll talk about that shortly. But in particular here, to promote and to teach the full counsel of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ and to have a life of holiness, and that means perseverance. That means hard sweat. That means Killing the flesh, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Mortification, not just private mortification, but collective mortification. And part of that means, and I want to encourage you not to give up, not to be discouraged, because it will take time, may take a lifetime. But you have a role, and we all have a role in this. In particular, the means of public grace. We're doing the best we can here, so we have it on video, so you can hear the preaching of the Word of God. That's one of the public means of grace. 
even if we can't meet together. The private means of grace or natural worship, as you hear in my Sentence for Class series, as we go over that distinction there, can always be exercised even if you can't make it to public worship. You can still read the Word of God. You can still pray before Him. And you can still give praises before Him. Now, another perspective on looking at what's required of reforming the church, not just teaching and practice, that's a grid way of describing that distinction. But here, Micah uses a threefold distinction here, to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly. So he emphasizes overlapping categories, the same thing, I would argue, but from a different lens. So let's use his language and his categories. To do justly. What does that look like in the church? For example, I think it means leaders should play favorites with other leaders. Pastors, ruling elders, and deacons shouldn't set up extra rules to protect the leadership that are different from the uh, people in the pew, as though we're somehow above the fray, and we have a special, a special license to get away with things. This happens, unfortunately. There are church scandals. Uh, pastors who should have been punished or made excuses and they get away with it, that shouldn't happen at all. We shouldn't follow the ways of the world. Justice must be enacted among church officers. Laymen should not think that we're untouchable. So it's not just the pastors and the ruling elders who are making excuses for one another. I've seen it in churches. They make excuses for the leaders because they're so popular. Somehow, hey, they, they're untouchable. We're not going to pay very close attention to the teaching because, hey, they're doing such wonderful things. They're drawing lots of people to the church. This is a great thing. And that's not justice. That's not rights. That's the improper thing to do. Uh, they ought to be held accountable. If they're sloppy teachers, if they make gross errors, just because they're popular and a big name doesn't mean they get away with it. That's, that, that ought to stop. It's an American problem. I don't know why we do it. Laymen, um, not just leaders, but this leads me to another sub-point. Laymen, uh, to be just or righteous, not just justly in the sense of going to court, but doing the right thing is the idea of justice. Righteousness among yourselves. To be fair-minded without playing favorites among members of the church. That can be hard as well because you want to play favorites with your family. There's favorites in the sense of you're going to be there for them if they hurt their toe, of course. If they're hungry, if they need a ride home, you ought to take care of your family. That's true. I mean, with respect in between family members and as members of the church of God, we shouldn't uh, make excuses. We've had this, unfortunately, where someone gets disciplined and the family leaves because their family member got disciplined. How dare you discipline my family member? That's not just. They didn't, they didn't deny the fact that person was wrong in what they did. They just said it was none of your business. It's a family member. How dare you do that? No, these kind of things should not be done amongst the church members, let alone the leaders. If a pastor's child, I like this example because I've seen it done, is acting out, for example, I think it's f proper and fine that church members go ahead and uh, take care of the kid. Bring him to the parents. Don't just sit there and say, what's well, the pastor's kid? I can't touch him. No. We're, we're all in this together. This is a public matter. If the kid's being disobedient, bring them to their parents. You can grab them. You can bring the parents to them. But in other words, don't make excuses. Don't turn a blind eye to gross injustices. That's not a gross injustice, but it's a minor injustice. It's a good example. It happens. We're all involved to help one another because we are a family of God, and we're called to do good things, righteous things, the proper thing, and the proper thing and with respect to one another as church members, not to turn a blind eye to matters that are gross injustices in particular, or to ignore conflicts when it's needed to be dealt with in the church of God. It's easy to avoid these things because we don't want to have one more difficulty in our life. I don't blame you. <laughs> as a church leader, I know how that feels. But you've got to do it as members of the church because we're told in Micah, we want reformation. Part of that is to do justly. Do the right thing. That means maintain peace as best you can, of course. Uh, next, we have love mercy. 
not only to do justly, but to love mercy. The two should be tempered with one another, as it were. Gentleness, in particular, considering where someone else has been. So the idea of mercy here, I'm unpacking with a more sub-point here, gentleness. And what I mean by gentleness is to consider where someone has been and where they are in their lot in life and react uh, to them appropriately. So, for example, many people uh, in Reformed churches, uh, visiting our churches, or have been here for a few short years, don't have a Reformed background. And others of us have had a very long Reformed background, for example, decades or grew up in the church. They've had, or they've had little uh, Christian influence in their lives. They're new, new believers that had no religious background at all. So we must consider that in our help in explaining things to them. It's going to take longer. To whom much is given, much is required. Well, these people haven't been given much, and so we need to be a little more merciful, to have more patience, more consideration with where they are. There are a lot in life. We're having more and more, for example, children growing up without parents, both parents, and that's going to affect those children as they grow up, teenage years, young adulthood. They don't have, they're unbalanced because they have too much motherly influence often and not enough fatherly influence. The fathers tend to be more strict upon the children in practice and that shows in those kids. And so we have to work with the kids and disciplining them, be a little more patient. That's gentleness, that's mercy. Long-suffering is another word here. And that means to be able to distinguish between large and small offenses. Long-suffering, you go with small offenses, small stumbling, a misuse of language or something. But a large public scandal, of course, you shouldn't have that much long-suffering. <laughs> because it's a more serious matter. But in all things, to aim for unity in the church... And between the churches, unity based upon the whole truth while being patient, long-suffering, gentle, and merciful with those not fully on board, especially those in the pew. To turn the other cheek, to walk the extra mile, these are the things that Micah is talking about and that we can exercise. And then lastly, in this last sub-point, to walk humbly before our God. Not just to do justly in the church of God to do good, but and to be merciful, to be patient, considering of their circumstances, but to walk humbly ourselves, to be humble before God in particular, not just with respect to our role in society, that's the reformation of society, the reformation of the churches, what is our position in God's church. We're all redeemed, to be sure, but some of us are, are laymen, others are church officers. We must accept that and accept our position before God and do our duty before him. Humility before God is to know our station in life in his kingdom, our place in his providence. For children, of course, that means being children in the church and to learn their catechisms and to submit. For men, that means leading and protecting and not avoiding responsibility in the church and in their families as Christians, wherever that may be, in fact. And for women, it means submitting to the husbands and supporting the leadership of the church to the best of their ability, given your circumstances. Now, walking here, he talks about walk. I didn't unpack that in the first point in society, but... Obviously, again, the Hebraism, the way they speak, is concretely. They don't mean literally walking with your feet. It may be involved, but probably not. I mean, your lifestyle, where are you going, what direction you are going in life. Our life must reflect, therefore, this humility to walk humbly. But our actions show it by obeying the law of God. Humble people submit to God's rule. Prideful people fight God's rule. They execute godly justice as best we can and not our own pet peeves. Therefore, we have to know the Word of God and submit to the Word of God, whatever position of life that we find ourselves in, being a father or mother or son or daughter, and by following, therefore, what God has given us in His Word, we are exercising humility. 
It's first and foremost, of course, of the heart. It's hard to read. But what you can read is someone's actions. And you can read your own actions. <clears throat> Are you willing to submit to God's word and his church and do the right thing? Many issues in the church and society, I would maintain, could be minimized or eradicated if men and women walked humbly and did their duty and responsibility before God. That means leaders. Leaders are not humble if they don't exercise their authority to protect the weak within the church. That's not humility. That's not doing your job. That's wrong, for example. In broad strokes, then, to walk humbly is to be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, but always, as well, quick to obey God's word. To walk humbly before the gospel in particular means this, to be quick to repent, to be quick to be zealous for Christ's glory of the good news of Jesus Christ. So it's not just the law, the law with, with, with respect to Christians in their sanctification individually and collectively in the churches, falls under the rubric of the gospel insofar as the gospel is here to restore us unto holiness in the image of Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior. Jesus took the law of God seriously. We ought to take the law of God seriously. This is the doctrine of sanctification. But it's always within the context of our love to him. Part of the humility is because we love him so much, we want to do what we're called to do, and we accept wherever he may put us. We may end up being in poverty in the next 20, 30 years, the way this nation's going, and going after Christians and those who are conservative, mostly Christians, who don't want to do these wicked things or support these wicked things, they, they lose their jobs. And that's hard, but if we love our God, we will do the right thing and walk humbly and do as much good justice and mercy with respect to one another. Let us examine ourselves, brothers and sisters, to see if these things be so. Do we take seriously justice and do we long to be merciful to one another and to walk humbly, especially before our Lord and God? Let us continue to do these things as we can by God's Spirit within us, who empowers us and brings us conviction and strength to do justly, to walk, to love mercy, to walk humbly before our God. And may God grant our nation a twofold reformation, I pray, a reformation for our society and especially a reformation for our churches these days. Let us pray. And so, God Almighty, we yearn for your strength and mercy to be exercised through and among us, God Almighty, that what we do in the churches, especially we pray, could be towards the end of reforming us, making us more pure, making us more obedient, making us more loving, and to grow in the fruit of the Spirit as well, we pray. Help us, God Almighty, not to be discouraged, but to continue on day by day, to do little steps here and there as best we can, that we may, therefore, by your mercy and strength within us, do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly before our God and Savior. Amen. Have a blessed Lord's Day.